I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Nyingonyi people. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I was so worried and so scared about moving to Tasmania, like it would be the end of my life if it didn't work out or something. And then I just told myself, it's like, I came down for six months in the beginning. I was like, you know, so you go and like, if it doesn't work out, you can just come back. You know, it's not, doesn't have to be like a life ending experience. Um, And then as it turns out, you know, four years later, I'm still here and I've bought a house and I live here now. Um, And it's amazing. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Annalise Gregory is a force to be reckoned with. A trailblazing Australian chef, food personality, and seemingly fearless soul in her pursuit of all things nature and nurture. Her experience have been abundant in food, place, and people, but also in drinks. Annalise, thanks for joining me. How are you? I'm really well. Thanks, Shante. How is it down in Tassie today? Um, it's actually quite nice. It said it was going to be overcast. We're having a really wet, really cold summer at the moment, thanks to La Nina. Um but it's actually pretty good. Yeah, I had heard it been quite rainy and, and almost misty and a little muggy down there as well. Um, what is what do you do in the kind of in your garden at the moment? What's happening in terms of uh, handling all the rain? Uh, rain's good at the moment, actually, because um, I live in the Huon Valley and it's green for most of the year. And then in summer, it just suddenly dries out and becomes like really dry. And so we're in that patch at the moment. And so like a little bit of rain is actually nice for it. I'm just, you know, missing like fishing and diving and being at the beach. That's all. I know that summer that we just haven't managed to get. And Elise, the last time you were on Deep in the Weeds with Huck, he was speaking to you prior to your book launch and your SBS series. First off, congratulations on both. They have just made huge waves and I've thoroughly enjoyed watching and reading both. How are you feeling since the release and have these ventures changed your life much? Um. I feel so much better since the release, especially of the show. I don't know why. Prior to that, I realized that I felt a massive sense of relief when it finally came out and that I must have been just feeling like low-key anxious about it before that. Hmm. Yeah, of course. I suppose just not knowing how it's going to be received. And did you get to see any of it as you were filming so that you could kind of see how some of the scenes came out and how you felt about it? Not so much while we were filming, when I was doing the voiceovers at the end, but then that was still in the process of editing. So they weren't like full episodes yet. And there was still a lot of cutting from there. So when I watch it, it's actually the first time I've seen some of the episodes like the way that they've been put together. And, you know, editing and producing can just completely change how things come across. But I have to say, it really resonates to me um, just how much it represents you. And I think it encapsulates kind of the funny side of you and um, just the honesty. I just I think it really has done an amazing job at, at showcasing who you are. Oh, thank you. Um Yeah, I was really big on authenticity. I was like, no, I wouldn't do that. We're not going to do that. I was like, no, I wouldn't say that. And I was like, oh, am I too, (laughs) am I too intense? Should I be like giving some more television leeway? But I guess I hadn't really shot a TV show before and I had no media training. So you just got me. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the best part of it. Um, My partner and I were watching it and I said, you know, one of the things that I've always thought about you is that you, um, That is you. You, even when you lived in the middle of Sydney, you still went foraging for wild fennel in the middle of the city, you know, and I just was like, that's Annalise in a nutshell. So um, well done and congratulations. You should be really, really proud. 
Thank you. Yeah, it's, I've actually really enjoyed it. And like we made a really good product and now it's out there and it's really nice to, you know, like get feedback and messages from people and about how their kids watch it and they like it and how, you know, a guy was at the beach the other day and he was like, is this Saltbush? And I was like, yes, you found it. That is Saltbush. Um, I'm really enjoying that side of it. It's really nice. And yeah, life feels a bit quieter now because it was such an intense project and with like cameras at my house and several the time um yeah still readjusting to that and have you had anyone come up to you other than the person at the beach and kind of talk to you about it because I, I was wondering how you would feel about that oh all the time and it's really strange <laughs> um like my neighbors were in quarantine the other day and I went to the supermarket to get them some stuff and some people came up to me in the supermarket and they're like are you that girl that we see on the tv and I was like oh no I'm in Woolworths what am I doing <laughs> <laughs> Well, you could blame your neighbours, can't you? <laughs> I shall. And how did you bring in 2022 this year? Um, what did you do for New Year's and what were you eating and drinking? Oh, I went to have a beach barbecue at a beach called Mickey's, which is like a Huon Valley, like Signet Beach, um, like super clear water, really amazing. Um, you don't often think about Tasmania having really great beaches because it's so cold, but it's like for the three weeks when you can go to them, they're stunningly beautiful and there's very few people there. So I had a beach barbecue, went for a snorkel, um, and like I do good picnic. Um, so there was lots of, I made like a, a white peach clafuti. Um, we had heaps of like fresh bread from pigeonhole, um, lots of different cheeses and like briasaran and stuff, homemade salami, homemade pickles, um, cultured butter, just, you know, all of those things. And, um, we were drinking a lot of, oh God, Anders Frederickstein's wines. There we go. Mm. Came back to me. Oh, I know. It's always when you're on the spot, you're like, oh my gosh. Oh, how delicious. I mean, it's, I think that it's obvious that you certainly would know how to do a picnic or anything that you bring along is pretty amazing. And everyone just thinks, gosh, why isn't she my friend? Um, but when you're not, you know, making things for yourself, you're not hunting and gathering in your kitchen, where do you go out for a bite or a, or a glass of wine or a martini? Where do you head to? Oh, uh, tonight I'm going to Tom McHugo's um, for dinner. And, you know, they have an excellent wine list there as well and like use so many great local producers for their vegetables. And oh, it's hard at the moment because, you know, after two years, Tasmania's opened its borders and COVID's just hit, so everywhere's shut. But um, we're going through it delayed from everyone else. Um, yeah, there's a new bar called Mary Mary Cocktail Bar, so I've been going there for martinis, and Lucinda makes a really good martini. Um, the, oh, and I've been going to, like, a pop-up that was at Sunny called On Vacants a lot. Oh, nice one. I mean, I think there are spoiled for choice down in Tasmania, but, um, and you know, you guys were doing so well until recently, which is devastating to hear, but, um, Tasmanian's food and beverage scene is thriving. And as a SOM, I find it really hard not to talk about the reputation of, you know, either it be whiskies or cider or beers and the course, the wine scene in terms of produce as well. Do you find that the food and beverage scene is intertwined in the community, say a lot more than somewhere like larger cities, like say Sydney and Melbourne? Um, definitely. I mean, it was probably randomly some wine producers who I met and not producers, distributors who I met and became friends with down here who largely influenced me moving to Tasmania. Oh, that's right. You spoke about Sue and, and Roger. Yeah. And actually they were at my house on Christmas day as was, um, uh, Rory and Dirk from Demure Wines. So yeah, the community is very kind of close knit in between food and beverage. 
That's so nice. And and it's something that I think we all wish we we had kind of when we're in the lar- larger cities, but, you know, work and putting your head down gets in, in the way of that, I suppose, sometimes. I want to go back a little bit into your history, if that's okay. Um, you realised you wanted to be a chef and your dad was a professional chef, but how did you start out becoming a chef? Like how was you, how did you pave your way to get into the industry and what was your experience? Oh, um, <laughs> I was a little bit of a rogue teenager, but also um, like a year or two ahead in school, like ahead of my age group. And then I realized that once you had sat school certificates in New Zealand, you were technically allowed to sign yourself out of school without parental permission. So I just did. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. As long as you were going on to a tertiary um, institute, you know, as long as you were. Yeah. So I went and applied to do um, to go to chef school and then got accepted and then just like took so much pleasure in like going to the headmistress because I went to an all girls school and I hated it. And just being like, oh, look, here's all the paperwork. You know, I've decided to leave school just because I want to. (laughs) You know what? That doesn't really surprise me. (laughs) Good on you. Um, you also took off or your parents took you out of school for a little bit and traveled around. What was that experience like when you were really young? Um, probably contributed to making me the gypsy that I've always been. Um, yeah, they took me out of school for a few years and we drove around Australia. And so I spent a lot of my childhood basically like shoeless in the outback playing with wallabies. Amazing. And that, that, that totally explains why you love being outdoors so much now. Did you find it hard to go back into school and back into um, the kind of rigorous routine of um, after traveling? Very difficult. I struggle with routine a lot even now um, when it's just, you know, when it doesn't change and it doesn't let up. I, I really struggle with it because it was kind of like every day would be in a new place and I would do school of distance. Um, yeah, so they ruined slash made my life. <laughs> we can blame them. So what about when you're working at all those incredible restaurants you worked at? That is pretty routine based and, you know, being very structured. How did you kind of, um, go through all of those different restaurant scenes with that kind of rigorous routine? Um, now I don't know how I managed to do that. At the time, I mean, it's just, it becomes very regimented in those kinds of places. Like, you know, you wake up at this time and then like everything is like down to, I would have it down to like a 10 minute routine before like I walked out the door um, and everything was always timed. And like, you know, I can get like four and a half hours sleep tonight or five hours sleep. Um, anywhere between five and six hours was the ideal. Other than that, I would start like worrying about the next day. But yeah, it was very... Um, highly routine based, um, for a long period of my life. And then now I feel like I'm rebelling against that. Yeah. I mean, I think your, your career has been wonderful, but like all good things, each experience teaches us either something new, maybe something that's good and bad. Can you walk us through maybe the lasting lessons that you learned from each of those different amazing restaurants that you worked in? There was the Ledbury, Michelle Brass, Mugaritz, Key, Franklin, Barbrose. What, what, did you learn along the way? I mean, I know that's a lot to put you on the spot. Sorry. Oh, that is a lot. Um, uh, oh, what did I learn from the Ledbury? Oh, just really how to work. We worked so hard in those days there. I know that it's different now, um, but that was like, you know, we would finish service and then you would wash all the tea towels and all the cloths that you had used and then hang them up. And then you'd be like bleaching the floor at like 1am and then would go back at like 6.30 the next morning and like take down all the laundry and stuff, you know, like they were really trying to like 
make a great restaurant and make something really work and do it on, you know, not probably not the largest budget in the world, you know, things like that didn't occur to me then, but, um, that was really, that was really hard work. Um, so yeah, that taught me how to graft, let's say that, um, he, I suppose key, like he's in the middle of a big city, but like key was the restaurant that made me, um, like wonder about like what was out there more because we it was so focused on um using specific suppliers and so focused on the quality of ingredients but it just made me really get into shit where are these ingredients from and like want to be able to see the places or visualize them or know where they were as opposed to just like having them turn up and being able to cook with them so key made me want to work in a countryside restaurant because i wanted to like go to the garden and you know pick the zucchinis myself and all of that kind of stuff um Braz, I guess, taught me about just like hyper seasonality. I mean, you know, he was like at the forefront of, um, you know, vegetable based cooking and also like, you know, using like herbs and flowers and things like that. But at Braz, it's not tokenistic the way that it is in some other places. Like they don't just come in a pun. It's like you only put flowers on the food if there's flowers growing outside in nature. You know, you don't just buy them in to stick on something like that's not Michelle's ethos. So to kind of go back to where that was really from and like figure out why he did these things and who he was, was, um, yeah, just a really amazing opportunity. Um, and it just made me want to, yeah, it just made me want to throw everything in and move to the countryside basically, because, you know, in Sydney, I would spend all my time like at Tim Williams street and just going between wine bars and things and just being constantly tired and hungover. I mean, it was great, but you know, it was a certain life. Um, and then suddenly I was in countryside France and I would spend my weekends like, you know, buying a baguette and like a really amazing cheese for like two euros and then hiking a mountain and then picking wild elderflower and then sitting by a river and making gin and tonics with it. And it was just a different type of lifestyle that I realized like suited me a lot more. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's, that paints such a beautiful picture. Um, then you came back and, uh, you, you opened Barb Rose for a very, well, how long actually was Barb Rose open for? Oh, I don't know. Um, maybe somewhere between like a year and a half and two years. Yeah, right. I mean, I I always, you know, people often refer to that cooking's a gesture and love. I still remember the late night toasties that you used to make for all of the staff. They were some of the best things I've ever put in my mouth. And they went on to feature at your menu at Barbrose. Does cooking and nurturing, does that resonate for you as a, as a chef? It does. I mean, I guess I don't think of it as nurturing. That's just doesn't come up in my mind, but I suppose, I suppose that's interconnected and that's part of what it is. Like I do like feeding people. Um, I think of myself as a very antisocial introverted person, but the reality is that maybe I'm a little bit more social than I realize. Maybe I like people a bit more than I think I do um, because I do like, I do like to feed them and like give them pleasure through food. Maybe it's just the right kind of people you like, Annalise. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just being very honest here, but you probably know this from having worked with me for like four and a half years anyway. I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> um, developing and maintaining relationships with the front of back at house is a huge part of a restaurant success. And I've always found beverages or knockoff drinks helped bring staff together. Can you talk a bit about your experiences with where beverages pay, played a role in that for you? Just in knockoff drinks or just in in terms of like moments I remember. Yeah, just in general moments you remember. I mean, you've always, I 
have found to be a chef that was always interested in the greater workings of a restaurant. You were always interested in what wines were being poured and you've always had a dialogue with beverages. So I just kind of thought, where did that start? And, and um, yeah, maybe some stories or anything you remember. Oh, I can't pinpoint it to a moment. I was a bit of like a, like a late bloomer on with the wine thing. Like um, when I was younger, I was very, really quite square and just like, just wanted to cook and be the best and work for Gordon Ramsay and all of these things. And um, just didn't really drink. Even when I moved to London, I didn't really drink. Um, I don't know when it quite, oh, probably when I moved to Paris, actually. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's um, class that with moving to Paris and just, being in France and like going to small wine bars and like local bistros and things and just seeing the culture was so different there. And like a lot of it did revolve around drinking, but not in a, like a binge drinking Jager bomb kind of way, just in a really, you know what I mean? <laughs> like when I was in London, um, it was, there was a lot of, yeah, you know, if one would go out and drink like Red Bull vodka and things like this and would go clubbing and stuff. And then when I moved to France, like everything changed and it was more like, dinner parties in people's houses and going to markets and going to like little bib gourmands and like saving up and going to like a free Michelin star restaurant, like once a month or once every six months when I could afford it. Um, so it was those kinds of things that, yeah, led me to like be, I don't know, to, you know, think about it a bit more and be more interested. And then the second time uh, I worked in France, I went and did vintage with Nicolas Camerant, uh, close to Lagio, which is something I'd always um, and that was the full like French countryside dream of like, you know, foot stomping grapes while singing La Marseillaise and then, you know, like eating at his house next to the river and, um, you know, going to going to local bistros and things like that, um, like during vintage. Uh, so that was really like a dream kind of realized and just sort of sucked me down the rabbit hole a lot more, I think. I suppose it sounds like a, it's more of an experience of culture and um how you saw it interwoven into perhaps the lifestyle of wherever you, you were at the time. Um, is there any kind of fundamental moments that you remember kind of as a chef that kind of helped shape you as the chef that you are now during those, maybe it was traveling or, or was it more um, just over the, the, the expression of, of years of, you know, working in lots of different areas that you really went, this is the kind of chef I want to be. This is the kind of industry professional I want to be. Oh, no, I have no idea what I want to be or what I want to be doing. <laughs> it's, just nat- <laughs> it's just naturally turned out this way. I don't know why. I never expected to be in Tasmania ever. Um, I think it's just a combination of all of the places that I've been to, like working in countryside France, working in countryside Spain, um, London, working in Sydney, cooking in Morocco and like, everything just kind of made me want a certain thing or showed me a slightly different way of life. And I guess all of those things combined to somehow lead me here, which is odd, but that's just the way that it happened. I guess sometimes you just, I don't know, give into it along with a bit of, there was a stage where I was living in Sydney and, you know, like was dissatisfied and really unhappy and, um, you know, wanted something different from my life and did just like take a giant leap into the unknown. Yeah. It sounds like, well, I've always thought maybe you trusted yourself. It seems like you trusted yourself quite a lot that you um, listened to your heart and what you wanted. Is that, you know, maybe advice that you have for young chefs coming up? If, if there's someone listening and they're thinking they really want to be a chef, what is the best advice you can give them? Yeah, probably that. I did learn to trust myself. It took quite a while. Um, but then 
you know, and I was so worried and so scared about moving to Tasmania and like it would be the end of my life if it didn't work out or something. And then I just told myself, it's like, I came down for six months in the beginning. I was like, you know, so you go and like, if it doesn't work out, you can just come back. You know, it's not, doesn't have to be like a life ending experience. Um, and then as it turns out, you know, four years later, I'm still here and I've bought a house and I live here now. Um, and it's amazing, but yeah, it's been a journey and I didn't know where it was going to lead in the beginning, but I just made a decision to like step on the path. Well, bravo to you for that. What has surprised you about, um, food and beverage in Tasmania, other than the amazing produce. Is there anything that did you think perhaps that there was going to be um, less abundance of different type of produce? I mean, what really surprised you about Tassie? Oh, Tasmania has the best tomatoes I've ever had outside of southern France. And I have no idea how. Yeah, that was really weird. Um, (laughs) What else? I was like, how am I in this cold climate place and having like amazing tomato experiences? It's very odd. Uh, (laughs) How cold you actually get in winter. The first winter here, I felt like I was cold in my soul and I would never be warm again. (laughs) (laughs) You definitely need to prepare, I suppose, like good woolen socks, I suppose. I own so many thermals now. Thermals are just a full category of the wardrobe. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, got it. Thermals, next time I'm in Tassie, must bring thermals. I do remember going out on a fishing boat a long time ago when I did a Electrolux, did the trip down there, and I remember, and it was uh, minus six degrees on the water, and I was not prepared. I couldn't believe how cold I was, so I understand. I was going to ask you a little about renovating. Uh, you do have your own incredible, I think, would you say 110-year-old heritage property and you're renovating it, which is a huge undertaking. I, I've watched two episodes of Restoration Australia, so I feel like I know everything. What is it like really renovating a home of that calibre? It's horrible. Um <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, it's a very much love-hate relationship that I have with it. I'm not handy personally, like we said, like they said in the show. I'm better with kitchen tools than power tools. Um, so everything is difficult for me. Everything is like a journey of discovery to figure out how to, you know, like hang a picture or like you put a coat rack on the wall. Um, so many things, like, um, and even things that I didn't think I'd have to do, like the guttering just like fell off the house and then like the plumbing, the pipes have like disintegrated into the ground and they don't exist. Like everything you touch or undo in a house like that just leads you to a whole barrel of new problems. Um, so yeah, being prepared for those things, I suppose, and not to, again, not seeing it as the end of the world, but being like, okay, so, you know, I wanted to do the wiring and I found out the entire house was wired with light wire instead of electrical wire and the PowerPoints weren't earthed, but we're going to just deal with this. And then once it's done properly, once we won't have to do it again. Um. Oh my goodness. I suppose you leading a huge kitchen brigade in a lot of your um, kitchens you know, especially what I suppose while you're at Key was a large brigade. Has that kind of prepared you for when things go wrong and having to um, just roll with the punches? Oh, maybe. I definitely have gotten better at rolling with the punches. And the other thing that I've been really shocked by is builders are so busy. They're like the busiest people that I know, busier than chefs. <laughs> They're so difficult. Especially now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't envy you, but it is a beautiful property and I'm sure that you know it is only going to get better with you at the helm but I don't envy you because it does look like a huge 
undertaking. But I suppose when it's yours and you own it, it's very different from living in a crappy rental apartment that's falling apart, I suppose. That's true. I guess what I've learned is do things properly and do them once. <laughs> that's my biggest um, yeah, that's my advice there. Very well said. Um, I want to touch on one event and look, you may not remember it, but I certainly do. And that's the Toys Collective, which was in 2012 called, I think, Blood and Bones. This is an event that you asked me to be a part of a long time ago. Um, and I remember walking into the room and you were sitting there and Kylie Javier Ashton, Louise Tomeo, Melissa Leong and Katrina Birchmeyer. And I had just moved back to the to the country and I was awestruck by these powerful, talented women and especially the fact that they were all of mixed race. And I remember saying to myself, there's this feeling that I had and I couldn't quite work it out. And later I thought, oh, my God, it's of endless possibility. Like being in Australia in the hospitality scene, there's endless possibility here. Um, it was a really incredible moment. Do you remember that dinner and do you remember the menu that was served? Yeah, I do actually. We just went totally nuts. It's kind of strange to think about it now. I can't think of anyone putting that much effort into a single night pop-up now. Like I wouldn't. Now I just walk up and cook a couple of dishes and off I go. Um, that was like months of planning. There were artworks made. Things were in jars. Like, yeah. It was insane. We made tables out of moss. Um, so many things. What were we thinking? I, I just remember, I mean, it was the first thing I'd ever taken part of. And I was like, is this how they always do things in Australia? I remember the, the, one of the first courses, which I think might have been yours, but correct me if I'm wrong, was these just huge pig's heads, suckling pig heads on the table with these beautiful knives that were kind of stuck through the brain and you would just cut off the face and kind of eat it. Do you, and then there was beautiful little squab legs that were hanging on a tree, like a Christmas tree of these hanging squabs. Um, and, yeah, there was also a dessert that was pulled from the roof that exploded down. Do you remember that? Yeah, it was a whole rigging um, that Jordana Maisie made and everyone had a ribbon that would drop down while the girl was singing opera and then they would pull the ribbon and a dessert would fall out of a bucket and just like splat in front of them. And the dry cleaning bills from that event were huge. <laughs> <laughs> I Well, I just remember thinking that that was pretty amazing and the calibre of chefs and the people involved in that was just wonderful. Um I don't know if the toys, I don't think toys collective is going anymore, but are there anything in um, kind of events or, or collaborations like that, that are in Tasmania that are kind of for up coming chefs to get together and, and showcase what they can do? Oh, that is a good question. And to be honest, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but now I feel like there should be. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I think that they're, you know, a really great opportunity, stuff like that for, you know, like you said, people up and coming to, to get involved and, and, uh, you know, work with wonderful other leaders and, and to learn from them. So um, it's something that I, I'll always remember. So thank you for that. I have to thank you for inviting me to that one. Um, but what's in store for you now? What have you got on the horizon? Um, I mean, are you just doing your day-to-day -day life right now? Have you got any surprises in the mix? What are you looking forward to in 2022? Oh, I'll tell you that in a sec. I just had a, um, a food and beverage memory from Toys. Do you remember that at that dinner we served sake with cheese? We were so ahead of our time. <laughs> I do remember that. I remember Gabrielle Webster talking to me about the sake and I was like, this woman, like the amount of information she put into like three sentences, like my mind exploded. Um, still kind of the same way I feel about Gabby now. But um, 
it, we were. That, I mean, I, I was and I was just pouring wine there at the time, but that was incredible. And I think that uh, a lot of those people there have, like, they've gone on to just be just magnificent. So um, a lot of talent in one room, that's for sure. You're right. Julian Island was also there. She made the dessert. Um, Claire from Bloodwood, um, Gabrielle. So, so much female talent in the industry. It's wild to think that we were all just doing the same dinner together. Yeah, I think it was the first time I met um, Alex Herbert as well and Christine Manfield. And I remember reading about them when I was, you know, overseas and being like, oh, my God, I'm meeting these people. Like, what is this? What have I turned up to? Um, oh, the future. Um, I just decided yesterday that I want to get more beehives um, because since the being in hospital with all the stings to my face, I've been much better with my beekeeping and I'm really enjoying it and the bees are thriving. Um, also, I, um, if you've watched the end of the show, you'll see like where I get a really fancy like green SE wood-fired oven installed in my shed. And so I got some internal walls knocked out and then I'm in the process of like getting the floors and getting that done and getting the shed turned into a commercial kitchen. Wow. And then you're, and you are doing, or have you got the licensing to be able to do your little 10 seater restaurant or is that something that's on the back burner? I do not have the licensing. So I'm focusing on, um, just getting the building done and getting the kitchen made first. And then I might just get uh, talk to council about being able to like just prep there and just getting it um, like up to code. And then I'll think about the, um, the license in the future. That just feels, because I'm doing everything on my own, it feels like a lot. Yeah, I can imagine. I suppose for now it can just be those lucky people that you have as your family and friends down there that you're able to to uh, invite over, so lucky them. Yeah, and just a space to be able to, like, test recipes and prep for events and things that's not actually physically inside my house um, because I'm terrible at working from home, I've discovered, so I need a place to go. So even though it's just next door to my house, that already will be better. Yeah, it's that kind of separation of of I'm doing this work now, but now I'm time for me, isn't it? Just and having a, a wall between them can sometimes be the difference. Yeah, I think so. I need to get back into some kind of some form of routine, <laughs> which will be good. Um, yeah, those are the main things. Oh, and um, I'm yeah thinking about writing a second book this year, like another cookbook, and yeah, just got a bunch of kind of projects like that on the go. Wow. Well, you never stop. And uh, that I can say that for as long as I've known you, you had just never seemed to stop, but you certainly seem to find so much joy in all of the projects that you have underway, which I suppose is why you are, are doing so many. Um, and Elise, if you could only drink three alcoholic beverages for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? Oh God, this is so hard. I'm um, just like three <laughs> individual things, like only one wine classes as one. Okay. I'm going to say martinis. Um, gin, dirty, uh, stirred, not shaken. Um, all right, I need something for every moment. Okay, martinis, champagne, and uh, Langalore Tavel. Oh, Langalore! Wow, that was that's a bit out left of center. How interesting! And I'm with you on you need to have a stiff drink, you need to have some bubbles for celebration. So I think all of those are, are very good choices. Annalise, it's been a pleasure having you on Over a Glass. I really hope we get to see you in person sometime soon. But uh, thank you so much for joining me and uh, thanks for your time. You're so welcome. See you soon. Thanks again and we will chat soon. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod. 
and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.